You're listening to KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. I'm Allie Lightfoot. Tonight, instead of our regularly scheduled newscast, we bring you a special treat to celebrate Halloween. Welcome to KVMR's Homegrown Storytellers, an evening of community storytelling. The absolutely true stories you'll hear this evening are all twisted tales, full of mystery, surprise, or in some cases, survival. And yes, a few of them are about ghosts. We dedicate tonight's show to the ghost of Mikhail Graham, a beloved community member and longtime KVMR broadcaster who passed away this past summer. Mikhail hosted the show The Other Side on KVMR, and we think he would appreciate tonight's theme. These stories were recorded live at the Communal Cafe in downtown Nevada City on October 26, 2022. Homegrown Storytellers is a collaboration between KVMR and the Sierra Storytelling Festival, which will take place July 7th and 8th at the North Columbia Schoolhouse Cultural Center in San Juan Ridge. Thank you for tuning in, and without further ado, here are KVMR's Homegrown Storytellers. Tamara Luckenbill is a sixth generation local yokel, Nevada County mother, storyteller, and book slinger who resides in her grandparents' legacy on stolen native land. Welcome to the stage, Tamara. Once upon an All Hallows Day, I gave to my puppy a reindeer hide. It had been a gift to me from my friend who didn't want it anymore. It was shedding everywhere. I put it on the back porch, a second story in the woods of Lake Vera in Nevada City, California. This was my childhood home, and the back porch was quite like a balcony overlooking a nice forest on a hillside. My puppy chewed on it, rolled on it, and tore it to pieces, leaving piles of fluff all over the back porch. Later that day, my sweetie over there, Manuel and I, went to our friend's house. They had just had a baby, so it was a very low-key Halloween evening. And we came home early. Later on in the night, we were enjoying a pomegranate together. We tore it apart with our bare hands. The ruby juices were flowing over our fingertips as we licked each one off, one by one. And what was left of it when we were finished, as delicious as it looked, we put upon a ceramic platter to make an offering. We stepped out into the chilly darkness of a typical October night, and there were two pairs of ruby eyes gleaming at us in the darkness. (gasps) The motion light turned on behind me when I jumped with fright. We stepped closer to the balcony railing, put our hands upon it and peered out into the darkness. Could see lines of whiskers in the dim moonlight just barely filtering through the tree canopy. In the light of the motion sensor behind me, the white mantle of this unknown beast glowed in the darkness. I thought perhaps it must be a mountain lion because it stood nearly six feet tall. Maybe it was scratching its claws upon the trunk of the 
pine tree right next to it. But then I noticed above the ruddy ears atop its head, antlers, at least three feet tall, clubbed, not like the deer that we have around here. Now I know that this beast was tall, even though I was on the second story, and it wasn't quite eye level with me, and about, oh, maybe two, three hundred yards away, because I could hear the antlers in the lower story of the trees, thunk, thunk, thunking as it moved. And those limbs were quite high. My father, also over there, hi, used to trim the limbs of those trees because when I was a little girl, he didn't want me to climb up and fall and break a limb of my own. And so I know that these creatures must be quite massive in size. What do we do? What do we do? We said first quietly because we didn't want the beast to see us. And then we wanted it to go away. What do we do? What do we do? We said louder. And it didn't even bat one of those ears. And so, of course, we descended the steps of the porch, click, 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 to what might be our doom. We walked through the landscaped yard, over the grass, beneath the Japanese maple, along the juniper hedge, past the happy little forsythia I knew so well, and into the wild trees of cedar, pine, madrone, and black oak, coming face to hip with the broad girth of the two beasts. We slowly placed the offering upon the ground and backed up slowly. And then frozen in fright, we watched them pass by us into the darkness at five minutes past midnight that Halloween night. Now I assumed that these creatures were ghosts because that reindeer hide was all over the place. It had fallen off the porch into the yard and down the driveway. It was fluffed all around our feet as we explored this happening. Manuel being more practical, use the internet, to discern <laughs> that there are three types of elk in Northern California, but I have never found an account of one in Nevada City or Nevada County or anywhere near these small little foothills where we live in the Yuba River Canyon. But perhaps it was an elk. Maybe the elk I see online uh, were photographed in the spring or summer, and in the winter they take on a more white mantle, very bushy, like a mane. Maybe their antlers just appear small in the photo because these were, were massive. Maybe I say three feet high, but like three stories high in my memory. <laughs> and I wanted you all to believe me tonight. These are true stories. I didn't want you to think I was pulling your leg, trying to get one by on you. And so I was shuffling my tarot cards, trying to figure out what's going on just the other night. And the seven of swords fell out of my deck, which what was really interesting was that it had a white stag illustrated right there in front of me. It said in the book that a white stag will bring you to your spiritual destiny. And so tonight I see that those two stags led me here to tell the tale 
of that Halloween night. Tamara Luckenbill, The Offering. And now we're going to have Trevor Hollingsworth with his story, Lost in the Woods. Trevor Hollingsworth is a local Nevada County musician playing saxophone, flute, and percussion with such bands as Lance Laswell and the Vibe Tribe, Moody Cat, and Jay Ross and the Higher Elevation. He's a longtime fan of live storytelling, first-time performer. Welcome Trevor to the stage. Hi. Wow, no musical instruments in front of me. Spooky. <laughs> so my story begins up in the High Sierra on a beautiful blue sky day in the early summer. And me and my friend Warren were out rock hounding, which is a newish hobby for me. And it's really fun. You just get to go out exploring in nature and look for any precious stones or crystals you can find or minerals. And there's a lot of good stuff to be found around here. We were actually having a good day, had some finds already. My friend Warren had just found a nice little clear quartz crystal cluster. Say that four times fast. We were just thinking of where to go next, and he pulls out these old topo maps. And on one, kind of close by where we were, we see this quartz mountain. And kind of thinking, mm, it's almost too good to be true that there's just going to be like plentiful quartz crystals there. But we thought, oh, we kind of got to go check it out. We're close enough. So we set out in my four-wheel drive van. And it took a while because the road was super rocky. But we finally got to the base of the mountain. And we start noticing some interesting mineralogy. So we get out, start looking around, digging around a little bit. And we start finding all these crystallized pyrite cubes in the rocks. But instead of being all shiny and golden like usual, they're kind of brownish and corroded. And Warren, who knows a bit more about rocks than me, explained that that means that they've been exposed to water. So that's important for later in the story. So we continue on. We get on the road that goes up to the summit. And shortly after, there's a tree down in the road. But we're about to turn back. But we're barely able to get around it. And so we keep going. And we're, the road leads all the way up to almost the summit. And we only had about a 15 to 20 minute hike to get up there. So we walk through some woods, and then it kind of opens up into some rock outcroppings and cliffs at the top of the mountain. And as we thought, there's a lot of quartz, uh, but it's really impure, and there's not really any crystals to speak of. So. But either way, we're, it's a beautiful view. It's getting late in the evening then, uh, so we decide to stay up there and watch the sun go down. It's a beautiful sunset, and watch the stars come up, and then you could see a glow from the south, which was the lights from Sacramento. So we ended up heading back to set up camp about 10.30, which was fine because we had our headlamps. So we turn them on and start to walk, and we're not finding the trail right away, which kind of makes sense because it was kind of dispersed at the end. So we just keep going in the direction of the van, and we're going and going and bushwhacking through about knee-high bushes. Not too bad. And only stopped a couple times to kind of redirect just a few degrees, as I remember. But we're just walking and walking, and 15 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, then like 25, so we're like on the lookout for the van or the road, thinking it should be coming up any minute now. And then we start to go uphill again, and 
come out of some wooded area and we're looking over a ridge and we see this glow. I'm like, what is that glow? And we start walking faster up to the edge of the ridge. And when we get there, all we can say is just like, no, no, it can't be. There's no way. <laughs> and we were looking right at the glow from Sacramento. We had gotten completely turned around somehow in the course of 30 minutes. And now I pride myself in being like an expert navigator of like, navigated in blizzards, backcountry snowboarding. Uh, me and Warren had been on longer missions than this uh, with no trail at all at night. And we were always successful at getting back. So we're just like, what the heck? How did this happen? They're just totally shocked, but didn't really have that much time to talk about it. We just wanted to go set up camp. It was already getting pretty late. So we turn around again. We're not finding the trail after five or 10 minutes. I'm like, no, we need to go back. We need to like get on this trail. <laughs> not trusting my sense of direction right now at all. So we go back and then Warren takes the strategy of just like, okay, there's Sacramento. We need to go there and just beelines it fast, as fast as he can. I'm like trailing behind. I guess he figured is this, if he doesn't stop, we're not gonna get <laughs> mixed up at all. So we're walking for 10, 15 minutes and still not finding the trail. And so I say, wait, hold up, hold up. Let me get my phone out and the GPS out. And with, you know, the satellite view and everything nowadays, we'll definitely be able to figure out where we're going. So I pull out my phone and it's only about two or 3% charged. <laughs> just enough to get it on. I get the GPS on though, and I'm just able to zoom in on our little dot as we're walking and see that we are headed north. And so I'm like, okay. And the phone dies. I'm like, all right, at least we're going the right direction. But we're walking and walking more, longer, and getting really nervous that we're going to get mixed up again after what just happened. And then I remember, wait a minute, I have a battery pack in my backpack. So I pull it out, and strangely, there's only one light out of four for the battery, and it was supposed to be fully charged. It was fully charged just earlier that day, and it's supposed to charge my phone four times. So Great. Well, it should at least be able to turn my phone on once shortly. Plug it in. I can't get it on. And Warren had left his phone at my house. So I'm like, oh, great. GPS would be really nice to have right now. But anyway, a short walk. We're going to make it. We keep going through the, through the bushes. Another 10, 15 minutes. And yeah, starting to get nervous again, man. It's not looking super familiar. And then I remember, oh, wait, that very battery slash flashlight in my backpack has a compass on it. I was like, sweet, we're saved. Like, as long as we can stay going pretty much north, we're going to find the van and be able to set up camp. So I pull out the compass, get it flat. We're both huddled around it. And at first, the needle looks like it's heading about the direction of north. And then we just both watch in bewilderment as it just goes, boop straight to south, like way faster than a compass should move. And it's kind of like twitching back and forth a little bit there. I'm like, okay, I guess the compass is broken. I've never used it before, but that's just our luck tonight. So great. All right, let's continue on. So we keep walking and walking and so much time is going by and I'm getting really nervous that we're just going to get getting further and further away from our destination. We're going to get somewhere where we don't recognize the landmarks and I'm starting to like size up. We're getting tired. I'm starting to size up some of the bushes around. Maybe they'd be kind of comfortable to sleep on, but I don't know how cold it's going to get at night. It's still early summer and we're at high elevation and we're both getting really nervous. 
and just keep kind of turning the lights off so we can kind of see landmarks and get our eyes adjusted so we can see something. And so I was just about to give up, and we finally turn off the lights, and we see this ridge line, and we're like, I bet the, I bet the road is up on that ridge line. And we hike up there, and sure enough, there's a road. We decide to take a left on it, and, it, and we hike back only about five minutes, and there's my van. I can see the reflectors on the back of it with our lights, and we're so relieved to see it and know that our warm sleeping bags are in there, and just like, wow, man, that was crazy. Like, at that point, kind of laughing about it, it was an adventure, but man, what just happened? How did we get so lost on that tiny little hike? So we slept that night, and then headed back in the morning. We didn't really have much time to talk about it, or we didn't get around to talking about it. We were having good conversation, and actually listening to High Sierra Music Festival on KVMR. <laughs> And uh, it wasn't until I got home, I pulled out that battery to go charge it, and it's fully charged. Flip it over for the compass, and the needle just goes real slow right to north. <laughs> like, what was going on with that mountain? Something weird was going on. I'm like, I wonder if somehow the minerals in the mountain can like create their own electromagnetic field or something. So I go on Google, and it turns out Yes, that's actually a way that scientists can detect mineralogy in the Earth is by these electromagnetic fields generated by um, a top mineral is pyritized rocks. And when uh, combined with downward percolating groundwater, the water acts as an electrolyte completing a circuit and it basically creates a giant underground natural battery and its own electromagnetic field. Like, okay, that explains the compass. And then I'm like, I wonder if it could affect batteries. And I do some research on that. And sure enough, electromagnetic fields can basically disable batteries. I don't know why it didn't affect our headlamps, but okay, that kind of explains the battery. As far as getting so disoriented and turned around on that mountain, I, the best logical guess is that the electromagnetic field was somehow messing with our internal sense of direction. But I'm not ruling out any paranormal explanations, some weird <laughs> Bermuda Triangle stuff. Um, yeah, glitch in the matrix, or even alien or ghost activity. I don't know, because I, I believe in all that stuff within reason. Thank you. <laughs> Next, we have Margie Dieterman with her story, Crushed. Margie Dieterman has spent the last 22 years enjoying Nevada County and its rivers, streams, and trails with her family, both two- and four-legged. She often loses track of time when she's out in the woods, and her husband sometimes thinks that she's a bit absent-minded, and she may be a little bit accident-prone, too. Uh, but her dogs don't care. Welcome to the stage, Margie Dieterman. So my story takes place on the Saturday of a Memorial Day weekend 10 years ago. It was a beautiful late Saturday afternoon. It had rained earlier um, and washed everything, so everything was really clean. And I realized, oops, I need to run some errands. Well, my faithful companions, Charlie and Micah, were right there beside me. They were ready to go. So into the car we went, ran our errands, and, and on our way back, up the driveway, we noticed that the kids in the neighborhood had figured out that it was a great day to be outside, 
and they were playing on the street with their scooters and all kinds of stuff. So Charlie and Micah were really interested in those kids, and as I drove up the driveway, the song came on the radio that one of my favorite songs is called Trying to Reason with Hurricane Season by Jimmy Buffett. Some of you may be familiar with that song. And so as I pulled into the driveway, I have satellite radio, the song stopped. So back I went through the car in reverse, but I kind of forgot that I had done that as I did it. Through the car into reverse, the song came back on. I'm listening to the song. Charlie and Mike are like, come on, Mom, we want out of the car. So as I've done thousands of times before, I reached back to the back seat, flipped the handle, the door opened, Charlie and Micah jumped out. One of them pushed the door a little bit too far, so as I tried to pull it back, it wouldn't go. So I hopped out of the car, just give the door a shove and get it shut, so I'd get back in and drive back into the garage. Well, as I mentioned, I had put the car in reverse. So the car started rolling, and it wasn't just rolling. The engine clicked on again, because it's a hybrid, and it started moving backwards. The first thing that I thought of was the kids at the bottom of the driveway. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, this car has to stop. It can't get to the bottom of the driveway. So my odds weren't good. It was me against the 3,400-pound SUV. But I was going to stop that car. And so my plan was to grab onto something that, w- that I could hoist myself back into the car to get onto the brakes so I could stop the car. And all I succeeded in doing was turning that car around on me. We were near the edge of the driveway, and the back door hit a tree, which hit my butt and rolled me onto the ground, off the driveway, onto the f- adjacent flower bed, And the car kept going. And like I was in an eye of hurricane, like reasoning with hurricane season, the sound went off. Everything went off. I'm lying on the ground face up. And what I see is the underside of my 3,400-pound SUV going over me with the driver's wheel coming over me. I heard nothing. I felt nothing. I was in the eye of a hurricane, literally. And then, wham! The car hit a tree, halfway down the driveway. So, the kids were safe. Yay. So, next was me. So I moved my leg, I moved my toes, I could move, okay. I I knew I screwed myself up. I kind of looked down and I could see tire treads across my abdomen. I'm like, I really did it this time. And so I'm like, okay. Uh, My neighbor had heard the wham, and then she heard me scream because I tried to lift myself up on my elbows to start to move. That was not happening. Suddenly, the sound went back on again. Everything went back on again, and I could not move. It was excruciating. Eleanor, my neighbor, goes, Margie, are you all right? I'm like, no, Eleanor, I'm not. 
Get Ed. That's my husband. He's inside screaming at a Cubs game. So she calls my husband and says, Margie's outside. She hurt herself. She, he comes out the, the garage, and he sees me on the ground. The car smashed against the tree. He puts two and two together. Something bad just happened. And Eleanor says, I'm going to hang up, and you call 911. So he did. She call, he called 911. They answered immediately, even on Memorial Day weekend. Um, and they were only a few minutes away. They came right away. So um, the first thing they told him, though, was don't touch her. So here he was waiting an eternity, which was really only about three minutes when they drove up. Now, by, the t by this time, Charlie and Micah are beginning to get a little concerned. Um, and they're like parking themselves around my head to make sure that nobody takes me anyplace. And these guys walk up the driveway with this board. And they're like, hmm, they look a little menacing at these guys, but they don't, they don't bark, they don't do anything, and I'm just laying there, and the guy kneels down beside me, he's like, I'm going to call the hospital, we're going to do an assessment. So the first thing I hear on the, other, on the other end of the phone is, don't bring her here. I'm like, oh great, well where are we going then? <laughs> so they slide the board toward me, to get me on the board. They said, we're going to put you in the ambulance and we're going to call a helicopter and we're going to get you to the helicopter and you're going to go to Roseville in the helicopter. I'm like, can't we just go in the car? They're like, no, you're going in the helicopter. So as they're sliding the board, Charlie figures out, uh-oh, they're going to take mom. I need to do something fast so that I, they bring her back. So he lifts his leg and I hear this sound and Charlie is peeing on my head <laughs> while they're putting me on the board. And so at this point, I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. And so I'm in the ambulance trying to convince the guy that it's time to go to Roseville. And he's like, no, we're not going to Roseville. We're going over to this field. And so we went to the soccer field across from the briar patch, which is where they take you when you roll over yourself with your SUV in your driveway in Nevada County, and they put you in a helicopter. The nurse in the helicopter was amazing. She was an angel from heaven. She saved my bacon because I was going into shock, and I was really not able to control my motions, and I was so afraid I was going to dislocate or move something that shouldn't be moved at that point in time. Quick ride to, the, to Roseville. Do you know how fast you can get from Nevada City to Roseville in a helicopter? It happens like that. But then I think my sense of time might have been a little skewed. So I get there, x-rays reveal very quickly that like a hard-boiled egg, I had fractured my pelvis in three places. So... The next stop on my journey was the ICU, where I waited for several hours for the big guy, which was the lead orthopedic surgeon who was going to show up and save me from my um, Calamity Jane gene that seemed to raise its ugly head that perfect day in May. At about 1 a.m., he shows up with my x-rays. He takes a look at me, takes a look at the x-rays. He goes, so... I hear you're a hiker. I'm like, yeah, I, I hike with my dogs quite a bit. And he goes, well, that's your legs. How strong are your arms? And I'm like, I don't know. He, said, he, pushes, he says, 
push on this. And he pushes on my arms. And he says, okay, here's the deal. We don't have to do surgery. We can fix this without surgery. You're going to have to stay a few days in the hospital, and then you're going to have to stay in bed for 12 weeks because that's how long it takes bones to heal. And you're going to have to do everything with your arms for 12 weeks. But if you do everything perfectly, you won't need surgery, and you can make a full recovery. And at that moment, I felt like the luckiest girl in California. Thank you, Margie. I'm glad you're here to tell that story. Next, we have Susan Schreiber. Susan Schreiber is a KVMR broadcaster as well as an outdoor enthusiast. Both of those endeavors have led to many unpredictable moments. Susan is going to tell you about one of those unpredictable moments right now. Welcome to the stage, Susan Schreiber. I was invited to go on a kayak trip off the Santa Cruz Pier with my friends. And I had just had knee surgery, and I thought, great, this is something I can do and exercise and be outdoors without doing my normal outdoor hiking and skiing or whatever. And uh, my friend Maggie said, yeah, there's uh, my friend and I, and we thought we'd go out, except there have been a few reports of sightings of great white sharks. And, uh, but we have a plan. So we all talked about the plan. It is known that great white sharks will go for single boats, single uh, what, surfboards, anything that looks like the belly of a seal, right? So our plan is if any of us see a great white shark, we're going to be a flotilla, and we're going to get together with our three boats close together, and no shark is going to mistake us for single seals. So, yeah, we have a deal. And off we go, and we're paddling out, out beyond the pier, probably a good half mile, maybe three quarters of a mile behind the, beyond the pier. And then Maggie suddenly yells, Finn! And I look. And right in front of my boat is a dorsal fin, probably two feet tall. And beyond it, I see another fin. It's maybe eight inches tall. And I think, there are two sharks. Until I realize, oh, that's a tail fin. And this is the dorsal fin in front of my boat. So the head must be right. And I look next to my hip. And there was the huge head of a shark right next to my boat. And I began to back paddle away from it, but it was following me. And my friend yells, it's following you. <laughs> I said, I can see that. And I'm also seeing them leaving. And <laughs> I'm like, we had a deal, you know? <laughs> and they're just flying away from me as fast as they can, paddling. And they're kind of looking back, watching. So 
I, I start yelling, what do I do? What do I do? And I, I'm sure I'm screaming. And I just decided to take my kayak paddle, and as hard as I could, I just whammed the water right next to the shark's head. And then I pivoted, and just like some kind of a cartoon, I was just paddling as fast as I could back to shore. And uh, so that was it. I made it. We all were on the beach. I'm, we're all out of breath. And I said, I, I thought we had an agreement. <laughs> Obviously, they were too scared. And I remember going in my mind, just, oh, I had knee surgery. This thing is going to bite right into my kayak. It's going to be over. I did all this hard work. <laughs> but anyway, I made it. And that's my story. <laughs> You've been listening to KVMR's homegrown storytellers, Twisted Tales, recorded at the Communal Cafe in downtown Nevada City on October 26th, 2022. Next, we have David Whitehead with his story, Monkey Mountain. David Whitehead hosts the early morning show on KVMR, 4 to 7 a.m. every other Monday. He's also a father and a husband, an engineer, a musician, and a dedicated climate change citizen lobbyist. Come on up here, David. Well, what would you be willing to do for a stranger? Or rather, what would you be unwilling to do for a stranger? What could you not even force yourself to do? to endure, to help a stranger in need. I mean, if it was blood and guts, if it was ferocious animals, if it was creepy bugs and insects crawling all over you, I mean, where would you draw the line? Now, I know that if it was your family member, no problem, everybody would jump right in, right? But a stranger, that's a different bargain. I think it's an important question and my story tells about my struggle with that question. In 1977, most of my family was working and living over in Saudi Arabia. My mother and stepfather were in the medical industry. They went over in 75. My brother went over to visit them and then got a job working for a company over there. And he wrote me and told me that he could get me a job to do doing the same thing in the same company. And so I went over in 1977, and I got a job there. Well, <laughs> six months later, my brother showed his great filial loyalty when he moved away and left country and to get married in Greece. My mother and stepfather, um, they moved away also, and they took a job in Riyadh. Um, my job was in Khamis Mushet over on the west side of Saudi Arabia, and Riyadh is more on the east side of Saudi Arabia. So there I was, all alone, in this rural town, Khamis Mushet. We worked like 60 hours a week, and um, so there wasn't a whole lot to do outside of work. But, you know, there were some hours to kill on the... Um, on the weekend, which in Saudi Arabia is Thursday and Friday, by the way. I don't know if anybody knew that, but um, Friday is the day of prayer, so that's like our Sunday. Well, one weekend, I uh, decided that I would do something fun, and 
we had a history and our a tradition in our family. We'd gone out to Monkey Mountain a, a number of times. So it was a familiar place for me. But what we usually would do is we'd climb up to the top of Monkey Mountain. And up there, you'd get this great view. And uh, so it was really fun. And, and um, there's a lot of interesting things to see. But you don't want to get caught up on the top of Monkey Mountain at sundown, right? Because the baboons that live up there, well, they're all down in the plain down below. And that's where a lot of people dump their garbage. So that's where they're feeding down there, and there's water down there. And then in the evening time, they come up the mountain for the night in their little baboon caves or, or whatever. So that, that's the thing. You don't want to get caught up there. So as I was going out there to Monkey Mountain, I really had in my mind that um, I don't want to get out of my truck. You never know what can happen. The baboons can all swarm up around you. And I tell you, baboons are fearsome animals. They have long, dog-like snouts and really big canine fangs. And they can jump from rock to rock like 20 feet in the air. They're really, really fearsome animals. And these particular baboons are not like all, that bab all those baboons that are in Africa. These are the baboons that are on the Arabian Peninsula. All the ones in Africa, they get chased by cheetahs or leopards or crocodiles or something, and they get eaten, right? That's what happens to baboons in Africa. But not in Saudi Arabia. On the Pen uh, Arabian Peninsula, there's no leopards or crocodiles. <laughs> right? So they're not really very afraid. They're pretty well habituated. And I'll tell you something, they're not afraid of us. So I was going to stay in my truck. <laughs> Absolutely going to stay in the truck. All right, so it's evening. I'm, you know, timing is everything. I've got to be out there at sundown when the baboons are all making their way up. But if I'm too late, they'll be up the mountain and I'll, I'll miss them. So I'm driving around Monkey Mountain, through the thorn trees, looking on this little dirt road, looking for baboons. And I'm sitting at the front of my seat, and I'm looking through the windshield, through the gloom. You know, where am I going to see my first baboon? When all of a sudden, a Bedouin man just jumps out in front of my truck. A Bedouin man. And the Bedouins are the, the local tribes people. And... He jumps out in front of the truck into the headlights, and he's waving at me frantically. And he's, he's in a panic, an absolute panic, and he's yelling at me, help me, come and help, he says. I, I mean, I don't know a whole lot of Arabic, but I do, do know the words for come and for truck and for hurry. And so he's yelling all this stuff at me, and I didn't want to get out of the truck. I mean, Bedouin goat herds, they carry knives. And there could be a lot, of, a lot more of his friends out there. And I'm a 20-year-old blonde kid <laughs> in Saudi Arabia. So I didn't want to get out of the truck. But he insisted. And it was, he was in such a panic, I really felt like I had to help him. I mean, everybody wants to be a good Samaritan, right? And, and I'm no different. I, so I got out of the truck reluctantly, and I started following him. And the whole time, I'm thinking, you know, are there going to be some baboons somewhere around here? Or am I going to have to run back to the truck to get you know, away from the baboons? Almost immediately, I noticed that there were quite a few flies that were buzzing around me. But I just 
pass it off, and I said, well, we're in a garbage area, you know, so there's probably going to be flies. But the more I followed him down through the thorn trees and into the dry riverbed that was down there, they call them wadis in Saudi Arabia. I followed him and followed him, and he went way ahead because he had bolted out there to try to, you know, to get to where he, he had the trouble. The more I followed him, the more flies there were. And the closer I got to where he was, it just got denser and denser and denser until finally I came around this corner and I looked through the evening gloom and, and the flies that were there and I could see him bending over down on the ground somewhere ahead. He was, there was some object there. It looked like a torso or something. I had to squint because he was in the center of the darkest, blackest cloud of flies that I'd ever seen. And they were, by this time, they were all over me and in my mouth and going up my nostrils and in my ears and around my collar and up my sleeves. And it was driving me crazy. What the heck is he attending to over there? And I realized that he was struggling with a 50 kilo bundle of expired dates that somebody had dumped there. And the flies were... I mean, obviously, the flies had been there for a long time because they really had a long time to establish a giant colony. <laughs> and, uh, and he was in the middle of these flies. The flies were all over him. His thobe was black with flies. And that's when I made my choice. And, and I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't go any further. I, I couldn't see myself getting into that cloud of flies and helping him. I mean... Why did he want the, the dates anyway? Why did he want them? Did, what, was he hungry? Was his family hungry? I don't know. Was he going to take them and sell them somewhere to make a little bit of money? Or was he even going to like, turn the dates into some kind of date liquor or something over there? I don't know what he was going to do. But I could not even imagine any reason for those dates that would get me to go into that cloud of flies. Well, I've thought about that a lot, you know, because, because I didn't help him. I thought about it later, and I realized, you know, I really regret not helping him, even though it would have been really unpleasant. I mean, he was in the middle of those flies. They weren't hurting him, right? So they probably wouldn't have hurt me. It wouldn't have killed me anywhere. And think of the experience that I might have had if I had helped him, if I had wrestled with that 110 pounds of rotting dates, put it in the back of our truck, flies everywhere. We both get into the truck, we go off to his village or his home. His family and all of his friends come out and welcome me for how much I've helped with the dates. They fix me a beautiful Arabic dinner and show me the Muslim hospitality. Maybe we, have, we become friends and we continue to correspond. Maybe I learn more Arabic. Who knows what could have happened? But I couldn't take it. I could not go into that cloud of flies. I love these stories. Next, we have Lee Pope, Rearview Mirror is her story. Lee Pope was a Waldorf teacher for many years at Yuba River Charter School. 
During her years at Yuba River, she enthusiastically embraced the opportunity that teaching gave her to share stories of all kinds. Lee has lived in the Grass Valley area for the past 22 years and is thrilled to have an opportunity to share her story with KVMR listeners. Welcome, Lee. So, I have a story that took place eight years ago when I was working in Orangevale, driving from this area to Orangevale every day. It's a 50-minute drive, and it was a routine that I had that I'd worked out that if I had some really good music to listen to, it was actually very pleasant. I didn't mind at all because I had this opportunity just to bask in music. So one beautiful autumn morning, it was around 7.30 or quarter to 8, I had to select a CD for my morning drive. And I selected a favorite of mine because it is so relaxing and just kind of blissful for me to listen to. It was a CD of a chant by the Sikh singer Snatam Kaur. So I put the CD on the CD player and off I went to Orangevale, driving along, kind of floating along, really, because of the nature of the music. And as we know, music does have an effect on our driving. I remember one time getting a speeding ticket when I was listening to Stephen Wolf singing Born to be Wild <laughs> on my way to teaching. But I thought this, for sure, would be a safe thing for me to be listening to. I was on... Sierra College Boulevard, cruising along 50 miles an hour is my guess, and traffic on all sides, but we were all cruising along, we were all on our way to work, and feeling really, really happy, just floating on the music and the beautiful voice of Snatam Kaur, when suddenly I realized that the light ahead of me had turned red, right there on the crossroad, and that the car ahead of me had stopped. I slammed on the brakes, and with a screech, the car skidded probably like three or four or five yards even before coming to a stop really, really just inches away from the car in front of me. And I was enormously relieved and slightly rattled, but I thought, oh, boy, that was close. I wasn't paying attention. My relief did not last very long because I heard this screeching sound of tires behind me, and then I felt the car shake and I heard a loud crunch. And I looked in my rear view mirror and sure enough, the car behind me had probably been cruising along just like me and had rear-ended me pretty badly. Well, my first thought was, oh God, how am I gonna tell this to my husband? But anyway, I was able somehow to get my car over to the side of the road as was he, although I could hear the tire scraping against the fender as I pulled over. The driver of the car, which was a champagne-colored Honda, and he got out of the car, and he was a fairly short, stocky man, bald, probably in his mid-40s to late-40s, with a very full black beard. And he was very, very apologetic, and very sorry that he had rear-ended me. And of course, I knew, beyond a doubt, that it was my fault. But Legally, it was his fault. 
We exchanged our information, and he asked me three or four or five times if I was really okay, and I was, and he was okay. His car was not okay. But somehow he managed to, to leave, and I called my husband, who was very nice, and came down and hammered the dent out of my fender so I could go to work. And later on, when we talked to him on the phone, the, the, the man who had rear-ended me, he let us know that he was pretty positive that his car was totaled. He was pretty unhappy about it. And I was unhappy about it because I knew that I had, that I had been responsible for this accident that I wasn't taking responsibility for. And I said, well, there's one thing I can do, and that is I will never, ever, ever listen to Snatam Kaur or any of that kind of, that kind of dreamy, blissful, spiritual music while I'm driving to work. It's just not safe. I cannot trust myself. And I promised myself that I would not do that ever again. And a whole year went by, and I kept my promise for a year. But it was another beautiful autumn day, and I don't know what it was about that day, but I remembered that particular music that I loved so much, and I just wanted to hear it again. I hadn't listened to it. I hadn't brought the CD into the house. It's like, I want to hear her again. So I, put the, I said, this time I'm going to be careful, really careful. I'm going to stay awake. Put the CD in. And I was cruising along the same, exact same routes, exact same time of day, on my way to work, Sierra College Boulevard, probably driving 40 miles an hour, maybe, maybe even 35, I don't know. But very consciously, I looked up ahead, there it was, Auburn Boulevard coming up with a stoplight. The light was turning yellow. I went, ah, oh, well, I'm ready for this one. The car ahead of me slowed and stopped, and I slowed and stopped behind the car. And we, I sat there feeling very pleased with myself, and I said, you have really come a long way in the past year. <laughs> and then I thought, I had a thought, and I thought, wouldn't it be really weird if the same car were behind me? And I looked in the rearview mirror. And there, behind me, was a not very new-looking, champagne-colored Honda sedan, exactly the same kind of car from the year before. So I started saying to myself, oh, please, please, please pull up beside me so I can really get a look at you. Because I was looking in the mirror and I couldn't really see the driver. The light turned green and the car actually did pull up beside me and very slowly passed me. I looked over and there he was, bald, round, round head, round face, round cheeks, big, bushy, black beard, same driver of the Champagne Honda. You know, as a teacher, you often hear that teachers will say to students, no, you can't take that test again. You don't get second chances in real life. <laughs> well, guess what? Sometimes you do. And now we're going to have a story called My Grandmother's Rings from Vicki Stanton. 
Vicki Stanton is a retired school psychologist who lives with her partner on Banner Mountain. She grew up in Scotland, which will explain her accent. And her contributions to T.E. Wolf's A Word in Edgewise on KVMR. Well, like most people on this planet, I was born with two sets of grandparents. My father's parents lived nearby when I was young, and we would visit them every Saturday. But then Granny died when I was nine, and six months later, unable or unwilling to live without her, Grandpa died. But I got to know my mother's mother a lot better, even though she lived farther away. She would come and visit us very frequently, and we'd go and visit her in the seaside town where she lived. But I got to meet my mother's father precisely once. And that's because when my mother was 13 years old, my grandfather ran away with a woman called Margot from the tennis club. My grandmother refused to give him a divorce and told everybody in the seaside town where she lived that she was a widow, which made it a little tricky when later on in life, Margot tossed him out when he got sick and said she wasn't going to take care of him. And he begged my grandmother to take him back, and she did. And she nursed him until he died 18 months later, and then she really was a widow. Well, neither of my grandmothers had very much money, but they did each have a diamond ring, which they left to me. Nana's had three stones in a row, and Granny's had five little stones in a row, and I got them when I was a teenager. I didn't feel like wearing them then, which is probably a good thing, because they wouldn't have gone with the peasant blouses and the bell-bottom jeans and the Indian jewelry I was wearing in a vain attempt to look like a hippie. And then I went off to college, and I certainly wasn't going to take them with me then, because I didn't want to take responsibility for them. So they stayed in a drawer. About a year after college, I got engaged to a man who was extremely practical and not at all romantic. So when we started talking about engagement rings, he decided the best use of the money was to buy me a spin dryer. <laughs> now, I think I'm looking at the ages here, and I think everybody here knows what a spin dryer is. So I'm not going to go into details, but it was a great help because I did all my laundry by hand, including the sheets and the towels, so I loved that spin dryer, but I couldn't wear it on my finger. <laughs> People would ask me about my engagement rings, so I thought, you know what, I've got those diamond rings in that drawer, so I'm going to put them on my finger, and everybody shut up then because they could see these diamond rings on my finger. And then after I got married, oh, and by the way, I had to buy my own wedding ring from a second-hand shop in London, and... I'm not with that man anymore. Um, I put the rings above my wedding ring on my left hand. And I noticed after a little while that the rings were becoming a little bit worn with the gold mountings because they were rubbing against each other, so I had them soldered together. After my inevitable divorce, I transferred the rings to my right hand, which is where I was wearing them about 13 years ago when my current partner, also not very romantic, but concessions have been made on each side, and we're so far so good. And I <laughs> decided to visit the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose. I'd always wanted to visit it, ever since I saw that massive billboard which used to loom over I-5 in the middle of the Central Valley somewhere. So, as most people know, the Winchester Mystery House was built by Sarah Winchester, the widow of the man who invented the repeating rifle. She was terrified, apparently, of the spirits of everybody who had been killed by those rifles. And she had built this crazy, wackily designed house in order to try and appease them. In fact, 
There's an article in the San Jose Daily News from 1895 that said that she was so scared that she thought she was going to die if she stopped building it. So she was building it from 1886 until her death in 1922. And the wacky things in that house, I'm sure many people here have been there already. There are staircases that go nowhere. There are corridors that have a dead end, that have a drop. There are windows that open onto brick walls. It's absolutely wacky. And it's supposedly there to confuse all the spirits that wander its 24,000 square feet. It's said to be one of the most haunted houses in the entire world. So my partner and I pull up in the lot beside the house, and we go and buy our tickets, we stand in line, and I happen to glance down at my right hand. Oh my God, my rings are gone. And then I remembered, I'd taken them off to put hand lotion on in the car, and I'd forgotten to put them back on again. So my first instinct, I've got to get back to the car, I've got to go find the ring. And my ever practical partner said, look, they're not going anywhere, we might as well do the tour first. So we did the tour, which I couldn't concentrate on very well, unfortunately. I was so worried about the rings. But we got through it, and then we ran back to the car, and he opened the passenger side door for me, and I looked, fully expecting to see the rings on the passenger seat or on the floor in front of it. Well, they weren't there, and that's when I really panicked. We pulled up the floor, seat, the floor mats, we pushed the seats forward, we pushed the seats back, we looked beside the seats, under the seats. We jammed our hands between the seats. We put the back seat down. We pulled the back seat up. I think we even opened the hood. We looked around the car. We looked under the car. We, we turned out the cuffs of our jackets. I emptied my purse. We emptied our pockets. Gone. The rings were nowhere to be found, and I was so upset. I was devastated. And we all know that there are creatures entities, spirits, poltergeists that sometimes take things. Maybe that's what happened. Or when I was a little girl, I read a series of books, I don't know if anybody knows them, called The Borrowers, about little people who lived behind the baseboards in houses and borrowed things. And whenever we lost anything in my house when I was little, my mother would say, well, the borrowers had taken it. Quite what the borrowers would have done with two diamond rings soldered together, I don't know, but maybe. Anyway, I was miserable. At the other end of the parking lot was a rundown multiplex, and my partner suggested that we go and watch a movie to cheer me up. Miserably, I agreed. So he locked up the car, I dragged across the parking lot with him, and we went to see Wes Anderson's The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a terrific movie, except I couldn't pay a bit of attention to it. I felt so terrible. What was I gonna tell my mother? Was the ring insured? Was there a deductible? How did I make a claim? But most of all, I was the worst person in the world to have lost such precious heirlooms. I was miserable. Movie ended. We walked back across the parking lot, preparing to drive back to Nevada City. My partner clicked open the passenger door. I started to get in. And there on the floor mat, in front of the passenger seat, in plain view, were my rings. Now, I'm not typically a very superstitious person, but my working theory was that the spirits from the Winchester Mystery House had been messing with me, and they'd taken my rings, and my grandmothers had said, wait a minute, <laughs> grab back the rings, and put them there so that I could find them. Or, couldn't have been the borrowers, 
Could it? You're listening to KVMR FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. And now for the last story from KVMR's Homegrown Storytellers. Now we will hear a story from Penelope Whitney, the night jogger. Penelope Whitney lives in Nevada City and has a horse named Rave who definitely sees ghosts when he spooks. She's told stories at several storytelling events in San Francisco and Berkeley. And now we get to hear her story here. Thanks. Wow, look at all these people, awesome. Um, So my brother David is a year and a half older than me, and like me, he's tall. But he's also really gentle and kind and uh, soft-spoken. And so when my friends meet him, they say, you guys are related? And uh, we grew up in Tulare in the San Joaquin Valley, which for those of you who don't know it, it's nothing like Nevada City. It's incredibly flat. It's known for the world's largest farm equipment show and Tule Fog. And Tule Fog is so deadly that, um, because it's so thick that growing up we used to play hide-and-go-seek in it. And if you're trying to drive in it, it's super stressful because you just have to go like really slowly and just hope that you're going to make it. So when David was 18, he fell in love. And his new girlfriend lived near Hanford in the country, about 20 miles away from us. And she had a Catholic mom who was insistent that at midnight he had to leave the house. So he would leave the house and and drive home um, on Highway 198, which is a two-lane highway, sort of like Highway 20 here. It just goes through the country. And one night, it's pretty foggy. He's been studying a lot at junior college. He's tired. He's leaving her house, and it's foggy. And he passes an almond orchard on Highway 198. It gets really thick there. And then the fog clears as he gets past a cotton field. It's defoliating, it's drying on the the stalks. And up ahead in the distance, he sees something moving. And it's something reflective. And as he gets closer, he sees that it's the stripes on a reflective tracksuit, sort of like late 70s Adidas. there's some guy jogging out here in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's no dairies nearby. There's no farmhouses. It's past midnight. And this guy is jogging on the side of Highway 198. He's like, that's really weird. And he looks back to the road to like focus on the road. But as he gets a little bit closer, the guy turns his head and looks over his shoulder at him. And he's got this thin, pale face in these really dark eyes that look David right in the eyes. He takes a deep breath and he looks back at the road and bam, all of a sudden the jogger's right in front of him, right in front of the car and David slams on the brakes. He's gonna hit him, he's so freaked out. He's gonna hit this guy and the car comes screeching to a stop and David throws it into park 
and jumps out of the car and like runs to the front in front of the bumper and he's looking and there's no one there. And he runs around to the side. He's like, hey, are you okay? And which is a weird thing when you yell when you've hit someone. Um, and he runs around the back and there's no one there. And he goes on the side. He goes and he looks at the bumper and there's no dent in it. And he takes a deep breath and he's looking around at the field on that side. And he hears the cotton stalks, which are dry, start to tremble. And they're, they're rattling like bones in this breeze. And he gets back into the car and he locks the doors. And he looks in the rear view and there's nothing behind him. And he starts driving away. And he drives slowly at first and pretty soon he's going as fast as he can home. He doesn't tell anyone. But he doesn't go to Maryland's for a little while. <laughs> and when he does go visit her, he takes the local roads home, which mean you have to stop at a stop sign every avenue, every road, and it takes twice as long to get there. And he's been thinking this whole time, maybe I was tired that night, you know? Maybe I fell asleep. And, and I was dreaming, and I dreamt this, and then when I hit the gas, that woke me, I hit the brake, that's what woke me up. And he's been looking in the, the newspaper to make sure there's been no hit and runs on Highway 198 reported, and there's nothing. And so a, a couple of weeks go by, and he's driving on these local roads, and he's just convinced himself by then, I fell asleep. That was a dream. So one night after midnight, he's feeling pretty good, and he's so in love. He gets in the car. He's, I'm going to do 198 tonight. So everything's fine. It's after midnight. He passes the almond orchard. It's not too foggy tonight. He goes past where the cotton field was. It's been harvested. And up ahead, he sees something moving. And it's those reflective stripes on the tracksuit. And he takes a deep breath. He keeps driving straight. And the jogger, once again, as he gets closer, turns his head and looks at him. And he's got that long, thin, pale face and those really dark eyes. And David pulls the car over to the other lane. There's no one coming. He's like, going to give this guy all the room he needs. He's doing fine. He's looking in the road. He's looking straight ahead. And then, bam, he's right in front of him again. He slams on the brakes again. And the car comes fishtailing to a stop. And this time, he does not get out of the car. He rolls down the window. Hey, are you okay? And he sits there for a bit. He doesn't hear anything. He rolls the window back up. He takes off down the road again. This time again, he goes really fast all the way home. And I'm awake when he comes home. And I see this look on his face. And I said, what happened? Did you wreck our car? Because we share the car. And he says, no. And he tells me what happened. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, I swear to God, this is the second time. I said, are you going to tell Marilyn? He said, I don't want her to think I'm crazy. So 
Marilyn comes over to our house for a couple weeks, and then her car breaks down, so he needs to go back. And by now, it's like close to Christmas. The fog's pretty bad. He, he's been thinking about this, and he just says, all right, I know what I'm going to do. He gets in the car. It's past midnight. He goes down Highway 198. He passes the almond orchard. He's got his hands on 10 and 2. He sees the jogger again in the distance. It's like the stripes, the jogging. And the jogger looks over his shoulder at him. And Dave's like, bring it. And <laughs> this time, bam, when the jogger's right in front of him, he hits the gas. He floors it. He goes right through that ghost. He's 95 all the way home. He never sees the jogger again. <laughs> he takes that road all the time and leaving Marilyn's house. He never sees it again. And he says, you know, when it comes to ghosts, sometimes you just got to go against your instinct. You cannot go for the break. You got to really lay on the gas. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to KVMR's Thank homegrown you. storytellers, Twisted Tales, the collaboration between KVMR and the Sierra Storytelling Festival. I'm Allie Lightfoot. You can visit kvmr.org to find these stories online. For their support, we thank Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties and San Francisco to Lake Tahoe milkmancompany.com and Ubidox Urgent Care since the year 2000 providing walk-in medical and urgent care accepting most insurance open 8 to 6 Monday through Friday 9 to 5 Saturdays and holidays and located in the Fowler Center Grass Valley ubidox.com and Green Acres Nursery and Supply with seven area locations reminding listeners that fall is planting time for trees and shrubs and to prep soil and check irrigation for planting as the weather cools. I dig greenacres.com.